Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Paul Axton, and I'd like to introduce in this podcast a concept that is often misunderstood, and that is the issue of Orientalism. Having spent some 20 years in Japan, when we begin a talk on Orientalism, we might imagine, oh, we're going to journey into this exotic other and see what this new world would look like. And of course, when we're discussing Orientalism, the problem is that it is, as Edward Said has described it, is it is as much about Western perceptions of themselves as it is about any reality found there in the East. That the Orientalist is uh, simply the thing that is projected onto the East by a kind of Western imperialism. And so it's a, a characteristic style of thought based on some imagined ontological or epistemological distinction between the Orient and the Occident. And so even in ideology justifying or accounting for subjugation of black people or Palestinians or women uh, or deprived groups, that is in the West, that really what we're, we're always dealing with the same form of thought. But now let me complicate it uh, one more time. That the Orientalism then is primarily a Western form of understanding or a Western study. But of course what happens in the uh, defeat of Japan and the moving into to Japan, not simply in World War II, but even up uh, in the beginning of the Meiji Restoration, the, the Japanese then are taking up a Western perspective on who they are and trying to identify themselves in the process, and of course what they're trying to do ultimately is ward off the West by in some way finding themselves in this Western dialogue or in some way getting the advantage. And so the typical contrast that you get between, you know, the West is rational and the East is irrational, uh, that throughout this, this dichotomy, and think here of a Hegelian kind of dialectic, that one can take either position. You know, we might imagine, well, the, the privileged terms here to be rational uh, is the privileged term and irrational. But in fact, what you'll find in Japanese Orientalism, and I believe we can call it that, is they will in some way take the inferior position or the slave position in Hegel's sensibility and turn it around so that, in fact, is the, the better position to be in. So, you know, the West is developed, it's progressive, and to go back to the East is in some way to journey backward in time, that it's always aberrant, that it's backward. Whereas in the West, uh, the Westerners are humane and uh, have a refined sensibility, but uh, in the East things, you know, people are crude, that, there is a, a kind of despotic understanding uh, ruled by a peculiar kind of anti-democratic institutions. That the West is very active and uh, aggressive and male and masculine 
and the East is passive and feminine, in a sense sexually corrupt, that that will be projected from a kind of Western masculinity. And so this understanding is not one, and in the way that I've just described it, the the privileged and the un, you know the, the derogated terms will in fact uh, be reversed or flipped on their head. And so Orientalism is uh, connected with a colonialism, but as Japan becomes rises to become a colonial power, they're then going to take up the same Orientalist perspective and make themselves a kind of imperial nation. And so what you get, the tip, you know, the typical experience when you go to Japan, this is probably the first thing you encounter, is that Japan is always a place, it's so difficult for foreigners to understand. And in fact, foreigners cannot penetrate the mystery and think here of the mystical East, the rational West. Uh, and so that foreigners by definition, and foreigners, of course, the, the, the term in Japanese is gaijin and what that might mean. It, it has all sorts of connotations. But in some way, there is this reified sense of an inside and an outside. And there is a sui generis difference, a sui generis essence in the West as over and against the East. And so as the Japanese have engaged the West, they've come to define themselves through what is called in Japanese Nihonjin Ron, or just the ideology of being Japanese. It can be traced back to Meiji, but of course it becomes even more uh, of uh, a defining essence or sense in the post-war period. Our journey to Tsukuba, which is a science city, it's a city north of Tokyo, and it's the only planned city in all, uh, all of Japan. Uh, there, in fact, there may be another city now that uh, is, has also been uh, uh, created as a science city. But Scuba was the first planned city. That is, there was nothing there. And then in the 1960s, the central government decided to relocate the cent central government. Now, that, that actually never happens. They never moved the central government out of Tokyo, but that was originally part of the plan. And they found in a, a, a new center for education, and so the national university that's located in Scuba is to be a cutting-edge sort of university. And of course, it's always going to be attached to a kind of right-wing nationalism, but it's going to be a science city. So there's some 210 institutes, and I may be out of date here because I've, I've been gone for a while, but when I was there, there was some 210 private institutes. I think there were 50 uh, government institutes, including the Space Agency and uh, various uh, uh, scientific research undertaken by the government. And so science in, you know, this was the pro projection even back in 1963 when the prime minister is imagining a, a new forward-looking Japan that science would play a key role in this, and, and of course it has, that the, there's a cutting-edge science there that is very much in, engaged, but at the same time engaged with a Western understanding. But, but at the same time, in this scientific discourse, there is a whole area uh, in linguistics, in brain studies, in bee studies, in monkey studies that 
has taken up this scientific discourse and in a kind of orientalist perspective so as to, to reverse it. In linguistics, a linguist named Suzuki has described the Japanese language as the most unique language in the world because of its vowel consonant uh, regularity that the brains of Japanese have actually, because of the language and his understanding, evolved differently. So that the uh, Japanese then, the, the language is such that it enters the this is the work of Tadanobu Tsunoda, who I've written several articles on. I actually interviewed Tsunoda. I assume that he must be have passed away by this time because 20 years ago when I interviewed him, uh, he was he was quite old then. But he conducted brain studies in which he demonstrated that the Japanese brain then receives the sounds of nature in the linguistic or the left side of the brain where foreigners receive it in the right side of the brain and therefore that nature speaks to Japanese would be a way of saying it as if it is a kind of language and of course all that Westerners hear is noise that it, it, there is no resonance with the deep meaning of nature and that's why Japanese have such a harmonious relationship to nature. Now, as I'm, I'm saying all this, I hope one remembers our point of departure, that this discourse is itself not one that uh, is originally created in Japan. You could take everything that I'm talking about, language, you know, that was originally a British sort of claim, that the British or the English language is the most unique language in the world, that uh, the brain studies, interestingly, strangely, even when I went to interview Tadanobu Tsunoda, he showed me articles from respected psychological journals. You know, this stuff, if you're not into it, it may sound uh, uh, bizarre, but that was the one group of people, and that's probably true throughout this, the one group of people that are most susceptible to believing this sort of discourse are precisely those in the areas of study they're undertaking. If you're coming at it from a sociological or from some perspective outside of the immediate science perspective, well, you immediately recognize that this is a part of an ethnocentric discourse that is being taken up and carried out in, in science. But Tsunoda may have been at one time the most famous scientist, but of course the whole discourse is to show that the entrance of the West into the East, and this is what you know, Tsunoda shows that a child that's nine years old, a Japanese child, and his, he's exposed to the English language, and usually he, he says it this way, uh, that it is English, it is Western, it is, uh, but of course it could probably be foreign language, uh, that it is on something akin to brain damage because he will not inherit or not develop naturally the Japanese brain because of the interference from the foreign way of, of speaking and, of course, foreign thought. And this is, he traces this uh, in his book in Japanese. He does, he writes two books, one's in Japanese uh, that is for a kind of popular audience. And then he writes the English translation called The Japanese Brain that many Westerners or people may think they're just getting the translation. But actually the, the English version is a much more, it's a pared down version and some of the more ethnocentric parts of his popular book are taken out. And so what you find in the Japanese book is that the Japanese lost 
you know, they were not able to perform in the Olympics very well in the 1960s. And later, because the Japanese uh, had not just been infected uh, in terms of their way of thought, but it actually the Western invasion, and not here in the, in the sense of, uh, you know, the war invasion, but the, the coming in of Western culture and religion, had something like a physiological effect, so Japanese literally could not jump as high or run as fast because of the foreign language. And also the foreign music apparently has a damaging effect on the Japanese brain so that listening to opera or Western music is peculiarly grating on the Japanese nerve system and uh, in fact will cause a, you know, if you expose too long, he de describes it as the kind of loss of the Japanese brain. Uh, now, strangely enough, the shamisen and the, you know, the Japanese musical instruments, Japanese wind chimes, Japanese Buddhist temple bells, now they resonate then in a different way than the musical instruments of the West so that they do not cause this dis disharmonious disruption in the brain. This just goes on and on. Uh, and of course, the surprising thing is that he was so well received in Japan and that even in the West, that those who are not familiar with the discourse of Nihon Jinron were not recognizing it for what it is. But there, there is this literature is continually being produced, and there's all sorts of attitudes and understandings that you get that are, you know, the, the whole idea in Nihon Jinron is partly that you create a people who have a, a united sensibility in being Japanese, partly by cultural elites that are trying to cultivate then a kind of subservient uh, class of workers that will not presume to take up independent Western ways. So harage, you know, the belly talk that you often get a kind of silent communication. Well, that's exactly what you want from uh, a workforce, is not vocalized protest, but silent communion and communication. At Kyoto University, all this gets taken up in the pre-war period uh, by uh, 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 the scientist Imanishi, who does monkey studies on at, at southern islands, and uh, I think even there in, in uh, Kyushu, that they, he spread his researchers out and they began to study the Japanese monkeys who, like the Japanese people themselves, are some of the most unique monkeys in, in the world, that the Japanese monkeys, in fact, have evolved differently just as the Japanese people have. And, of course, all this can be related to an understanding that the unique climate in Japan has given rise then to this unique evolutionary process. And so... Uh, he describes the way that evolution worked in Japan that one day a monkey, I've forgotten the name of the monkey, but they had had them all named. They didn't, he noted, we don't, as Japanese researchers, we don't need to tag the monkeys as Westerners do because they, you know, they don't have the interface or the resonance with the monkeys, but we immediately recognize the monkeys. And so we just name them, we don't need to tag them. But this particular monkey went down to the ocean, and he had a potato, and he took his potato that had some mud on it, and he washed the potato in the ocean, and at the same time, of course, he salted the potato and discovered then the new tasty form of uh, vegetation 
But at the same time that this happened, that researchers on one of the other southern islands witnessed a monkey on that island for the first time taking a potato down and washing it in the ocean. And so what Imanishi proposes is that where in the West that evolution occurs, is by, occurs uh, on the, an individual basis, that it is a corporate kind of evolutionary leap that you find in Japanese evolution. And so this is the whole, you know, the difference between the West and the East that we, that, you know, think back to our list of individualism. This is grounded then in nature itself, so, so that the individual is predominant in the West, but in the East, even evolution, in an evolutionary sense, there is this corporate identity. And of course, what Ibanishi finds is what you would find in the human society. He talks about a my, which I'll come to in a moment, in terms of an, a dependence, the mother-child dependence that the uh, is is discovered in psychoanalysis in Japan, but is one of the key characteristics of Japanese people. So that, in fact, many of the attitudes that you find in Japanese people is going to Imanishi discovers them there in the monkeys. Uh, Sakagami does bee studies, similar sort of thing. He discovers that Japanese bees are different than any other bees in the world. And just think here a minute as I'm saying all these things, a Japanese brain. Japanese language, Japanese monkeys, as if there is some sort of ontological difference. There is this category, Japanese, as if that in any way makes sense. Remember, there is no such thing as even a, a corporate Japanese identity, probably uh, before the Meiji Restoration, so that the Japanese people, there is no, you know, if you ask somebody down in Kyushu who they were before you know, in the 1700s or the early 1800s, they wouldn't say, well, I'm a Japanese person. They would say, well, I'm of the a particular clan or I worship this particular spirit. The, 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 and even the language was distinct enough through the islands that the language spoken uh, on Okinawa is, is, could be classed a different language, certainly a different dialect language that's spoken in, in Kagoshima even today is incomprehensible to people from uh, the northern parts of the, the island. And so the, the idea of an identity, that's of course what's being forged in this discourse, and, and it's there in all nation states. I mean, this is the invention of the nation state of, you know, British identity or uh, American identity is one of the nation state. And so that's the sense that this is being served. Maybe the, the most famous of the Nihonji Ron discourse is that of, in psychoanalysis of Takeo Doi, which was uh, kind of my introduction, strangely enough, to psychoanalysis. I had no particular interest in psychoanalysis, but as a missionary, I felt I needed to understand at least Japanese self-perception and the psychoanalytic work was the most Per, uh, pervasive. That is, Doi's work has been more popular, more widely published than, than any of this. And his whole development of a Japanese sensibility, there's a story there that his teacher uh, went and studied under Sigmund Freud and gives us, and this is what, it, it's not overt in his work, but what he's giving us, and we can get into the details of this uh, later, but he's actually giving us 
Western psychoanalysis in reverse. That is, the things that are privileged in the West are going to be denigrated in the East, and what is denigrated in the West will be privileged in the East. And so even things like the ego, which in the Western notion of psychoanalysis you want to develop your ego, cultivate your individualism, well, in the Eastern psychoanalysis or in Japanese psychoanalysis, the idea would be to get rid of the ego. Where in uh, Freud's picture, the death drive was a negative force that one needed to in some way uh, control and channel uh, that as Doi presents it, and he'll use Japanese Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, and Nirvana, and strangely, and he must be aware that this is precisely Freud's description of the fusion of the life instinct and the death instinct, that Freud calls it the Nirvana principle. But of course, Freud doesn't mean that as a goal, or he doesn't mean it in a complementary manner. But in his picture, when the Nirvana principle takes over, you fuse pleasure with the death drive, the death instinct with arrows. That death, in fact, has taken over completely, and there's a dissolution of the self. Well, in Doi's picture, that's the goal. In, in, in Buddhism, is that the self be dissolved. Now, I should point out that in a lot of this, Doi was a good Presbyterian. Suzuki, that you go through these people, that, that, that they're Christians, but in some way, their Christianity even was subjugated then to the, the eth ethnocentric thinking in some way is privileged even over their adaption of, of a, a Christian understanding. We, we could sum this up, you know, the uniqueness of the two systems or even just of two languages that where in the West there is always this outward gregarious outward-looking in the East, it's always inward-looking. Uh, that's, you know, think here of the passivity, the harage, the belly talk. Think of the divide between the inward, the honne, and uh, the inward self is always hidden, that you, you protect your inward self. Where in the West there is a kind of a, aggression, well, this is shifted in an East, Eastern understanding that we Japanese then are pictured as the most peaceable people in the world. Suzuki says that if the Japanese you know, language were accepted by the United Nations, that world peace could be found because the Japanese language then cultivates a peaceableness and a harmoniousness that otherwise is not there. In the, the Western understanding, so here what I'm doing is there's the, the shifting of the, the discourse then. The, in, the, in the West where the mind works always in an objective intellectualization. You know, think here of the monkey studies, even issues monkey studies, you objectify the object of study. Uh, in the Eastern or in the Japanese understanding that the mind brushes up against things, it, it, there's a kind of placid sentiment of participation and, and not an objectification. In the Western discourse, you know, where scholarly writing and logic and kind of uh, objective discourse is favored, poetry and even the novel, and uh, she shows that to the novel is a, a confession of an inward understanding. The Western understanding is, you know, the hard, brawny muscles of the father, a kind of violent aggression in the East. Again, they're taking the same discourse 
but the east, uh, the Japanese are like the soft, tender uh, of a mother's skin, the cheeks of a mother's skin. The Western understanding is guided by law, language, bureaucracy, and the Eastern understanding there is the voice of private lyricism, of a kind of emotive understanding. So what do you do with all this? You know, is this, is this a reality? Or in what sense is it a reality? Of course, there is always the problem of sorting out what people believe that it in some sense does become for them a truth about them, but they've of course bought into an understanding and they define themselves by a discourse that in, in any normative sense of the word true is not true, but uh, you can the truth can inhere in a lie in this understanding so that it is the case that you will encounter many of these things or many of these interpretations in the East that it is a way of defining the self over and against the West. But remember, it's also the Western way of defining itself over and against the East. And of course, that's Said's point in Orientalism, uh, that in, in some way that we would imagine that uh, an ethno, ethnic identity or cultural identity or racial identity uh, has some uh, ontological reality to it. And that's, that's seeped you know, throughout this, this sort of discourse. Now I'll draw in the next talk that I do, I'll draw some conclusions, but I'm just setting up here uh, the basic discourse of Orientalism. And this discourse, I think, is not a unique sort of discourse, but this is an example of the kind of discourse, a kind of dialectic, that every identity through difference is going to involve itself in. This is an example, I would say, of what Hegel has come to identify, and of course Hegel makes the same mistake as all Orientalists make. He imagines that this dialectic itself is the reality that we inhabit, and as we begin to, to recognize the, the nature of the dialectic, I think we can understand that the departure from this sort of discourse is, is going to be the only means of extracting ourselves from a lie that has gripped us, not simply in this discourse, but in the human discourse. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.